Okay, as you're working your way back in, let's open our scriptures this morning to 1 Peter. We're now in the fourth chapter, so I'll be opening your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll continue in our study. Today, I want to pick up our reading in verse 12. We're not going to be, I want to read from verses 12 to 19, but we're only going to be examining today verses 12 and 13 out of that segment. But I want to read the whole segment because it's all dealing with the reality of suffering and trials in the Christian walk. And so I want to set the context up for the passage we'll be looking at. So 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. That you've breathed out your truth to us and you've superintended the writing of it down and the transmission of it so that we can have it available to us. And then as we're in it, we thank you that your Holy Spirit carries out an illumining ministry for us that we might understand it truly not just in our minds, but in our hearts, and that we might see the application of it like a mirror. In this time, Lord, help us to understand what you've taken the time to say, and then work within us that we might step forward in obedience to it, drawing upon the enabling of that same Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts, but empowers our lives as well. For we ask that... Jesus' name. Amen. In our study through the book of 1 Peter, uh, we've been make, taking it verse by verse. Uh, the last segment that we looked at, verses 7 to 11, had a focus on the end times and living with an end times mindset. As verse 7 put it, therefore, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. And we were looking at some of the ways in which our Life choices, our priorities, are intended to be influenced by our era that we find ourselves in. And we talked about what that phrase, end times, represents, or the end of all times represents, how in the scriptures it's used as a general term to describe all of that era from the time of the cross and resurrection until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But also, in a very specific way, it refers to those events near the end of that overall general era, 
we all fit somewhere in that era, all right? That's the period that we're in. And therefore, the challenges are applicable to all of us. Uh, and we talked about the prioritizing of prayer. We talked about the prioritizing of love. Agape is the word in the Greek there. We talked about the prioritizing of hospitality. And finally, the prioritizing of using the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Now, in verse 12, which I began to read today, there is a shift in the uh, direction of the book and the focus of the book. And we, it'd be a good place for chapter divisions, but they don't always end up at the right, at good places. They're better than nothing. But you understand it was in the 15th century, actually the 16th century, when chapter divisions and, and verse divisions were first put into the scriptures. And they have been useful to us. Instead of me just saying, well, turn to First Peter about two-thirds of the way through. You know, we can say, okay, we're going to look at these verses. But they were not in the original manuscripts, and uh, uh, they were just a convenience to be added later on. And sometimes uh, they're helpful, and, and other, well, I think they're always helpful, but sometimes, given the way we write and think in English, where chapter divisions have a lot with ending of some concept and the beginning of a new concept, uh, if you have a chapter division at the wrong place and you're in the middle of a concept, uh, you, your mind tends to stop and try to look at it in isolation from the end of it. And that can happen here. At any rate, we're in a new focus. And the focus, obviously, in these verses I read to you today is on suffering and trials in the Christian walk. And if you've been with me throughout our time in First Peter, it's not a new topic. Uh, it's one of those threads that keeps emerging all through First Peter. Back in the first chapter in verses 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So right at the very beginning, boom, we encounter the reality of trial, the reality of suffering in the Christian walk. And, uh, and if you breathe the sigh of relief after we finish that, we got into the second chapter. And uh, beginning in verse 19, the second chapter says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And then we got in the third chapter, in verse 17, or 13 onward, it said, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that's a hope in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then even starting the fourth chapter, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. No one is really happy about thinking about trials and suffering. Uh, let's be honest about it. Uh, and you can grit your teeth and get through one chapter where it happens to be the focus. But in First Peter, 
doesn't matter whether you grit your teeth to get through one of the chapters. It's like, oh no, here it comes in the second chapter. Oh no, here it is in the third chapter. And twice in the fourth chapter? You know, oh no. Uh, suffering and trials obviously are an important theme. You know, it shouldn't come as any surprise to you that one of the basic rules for interpreting literature, and particularly the scriptures, the hermeneutics, let's talk about it in that terminology, which is the official way of describing it, is that there's an emphasis by space. When there's a repeated thing, it means it's important. Uh, Therefore, this issue of suffering and trials must be important, or God wouldn't come back and revisit it. And by the way, it's not Peter revisiting it, and it's not Paul revisiting it, it's God revisiting it. We always have to make sure that's how we're recognizing the scriptures. It's God breathed. I mean, God's the author here, how he used his, the writers, but nonetheless, he's the author. Now, one of the things that has always been true in church history, but boy, especially in more recent portions of church history, misguided and false teachers abound who say, uh, no, suffering and trials. That's, that's not supposed to be part of the Christian walk. I've even heard one of the classic uh, representatives that I say, well, why would God want you to suffer? Or, you know, God just wants life to work out good for you. He, he loves you. And uh, wouldn't God want you to be happy was another way in which it was phrased. And you know what I do? I sat down with one of the, one of the leaders, uh, and I said, well, listen, I think you asked the wrong question. Would God want people to be saved? Well, of course we know. He's not willing that any would perish, but all would reach repentance. Some won't. Why? Because there's another factor in this. One has to repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, You're asking the wrong question. It isn't from God's heart, would he like it for you not to be suffering? Of course he would. (laughs) But is it sometimes his will that you suffer? Uh, yeah, well, we even read that. That was part of the verse here, you know, suffering according to God's will. So you're asking the wrong question. You ask the wrong questions, you end up the wrong place, brothers and sisters. And you have to be careful what questions are being asked. Because if they're not the right question, it can get you off in left field real quick, you know. And not even in the same playing field. You're, you're in the other field. Now, a lot of the Little League fields are set up. You know, you have several fields around. You're, not, you're, in, you're in a different field altogether now, not just in the left field. Well, suffering in trials, not just in First Peter, but throughout the epistles, continues to be front and center. And instead of being something contrary to God's best, so to speak, is one of the people I have a great deal of uh, respect for said, you know, really, if you're looking for common denominators of the Christian walk, this is one of them. Now, I know there are places where people try to trick people into following Jesus where they never want to say that, you know, or they want to leave the impression that won't be the case. But we're not about tricking people into following Jesus. We're about sharing God's word and God's word convicting hearts and people following Jesus out of conviction, out of repentance and faith. Uh, You never gain anything by trickery, brothers and sisters. And uh, we don't have to massage our message in order to get people to follow the Lord. Listen, if it is the common denominator, then it ought to be the norm in a church that people have empathy towards suffering brothers and sisters. 
It ought to just be the inevitable thing. You know, somebody's going through some trials, suffering, and your heart just goes out to them. And the question I pose is, does that happen as often as you think it would? And the answer is, it doesn't happen as often as you think it would. And why? Well, one reason. Because suffering and trials in someone's life makes us a bit fearful. Because that could happen to us. Uh, That could happen to us. Uh, it's, It's the reason why the tendency is to be more like Job's friends that when all of the terrible suffering goes on, you come in and you think, well, we've got to get to the bottom of this because none of this would have happened to you unless you were sinning, Job. You know, So we look at the believer and we say, well, none of this would have happened to you unless somebody was really out of, out of God's will. Because if you weren't out of God's will, that may, might cause me to re-examine my understanding of what it means to follow the Lord. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to play it. So empathy is not as much seen as God wants it to be. Hey, listen, when we're facing trials and tribulations and suffering, we need the body. We need to be around brothers and sisters. We need people that empathize with us, care about us, are not judging us because we're facing it, uh, are not relieved because we're getting it instead of them. Uh, No, no. uh, We need people that empathize and say, I understand. Been there, done that. God was faithful to us in it. Sometimes it's his will. The believer is called to respond differently from the world to the inevitability of trials. And verses 12 to 19 continues this theme and introduces us to a number of principles, things that help us to respond differently than natural people do to the reality of suffering. And we'll get into those. But today, like I said, I want to focus in on the opening verses here, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says, Brothers, beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Principle number one, obvious from even what I've already said to you, we're not to be surprised when fiery trials happen in our lives. The Bible makes it plain that such things are going to happen in our lives. Not just for an unfortunate couple of people. But all of us, I was thinking of Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. It says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. This is Paul talking to Timothy, kind of saying, hey, you've seen what's happened in my life. After saying those things, he moves on in verse 11. He says, my persecutions and my sufferings. Those things happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, and he could have gone on and on from there, you know, Timothy had seen it. Persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Was there, faithful to me, giving grace. And then he says in verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not that they run the risk. They will be. I mean, there's not supposed to be any exceptions to that. No matter how much you pray, brothers and sisters, there aren't going to be any exceptions to that formula. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will end up being persecuted. 
And that's persecution, that suffering can take all kinds of forms, physical, emotional, relational, uh, spiritual. Uh, all kinds of ways suffering uh, can show itself. Uh, I guess a suffering believer quote is not meant to be a contradiction in terms. But I propose to you it is a contradiction in terms for much of the message of the modern church. Suffering believer? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, the message we're saying is that God loves you so much, nobody's going to suffer if you only get right to do the things God wants. And, uh, but it's not a contradiction in terms. And he says it in this way here in this verse. He says, remember when you suffer that nothing strange is happening here. Nothing strange. Uh, the word strange translates a Greek word which refers to something foreign, something alien, something, uh, you know, what wasn't in the calculation of what life was supposed to bring our way. Uh, and says, hey, wait, wait, there's nothing crazy about this. There's nothing strange. This isn't a Twilight Zone outcome in your life. That dates me too, doesn't it? But anyway, this isn't a Twilight Zone sort of fiction situation. Nothing strange. Now, here again is one of these peculiar things. Despite such a clear statement, the normal response I discover is people are surprised and bewildered when suffering happens. It's like, no, wait a second, this is strange. Now, why would that be? in light of the clear statements that the Scripture gives us. Why, why would it be? Why would somebody be so surprised instead of not being surprised? Well, I think sometimes I think we feel we don't deserve suffering. You know, we, we may be humble in talking to other people and saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not all God would like me to be, and I'm trying to do that. But, but at some level we're thinking, but at least I'm enough of what God wants me to be that maybe I've avoided some of the more direct intervention stuff, you know. And, and so it happens, we're kind of not expecting it. Or we feel maybe this shouldn't be happening to us. Or maybe God is not holding up his side of the bargain here, you know. In fact, I, re- I remember very distinctly last week, Lord, I was determined, I, I, you're going to be Lord, we're going to move forward with that. And wow, I got suffering right after that. What's this about? You know, I thought, I thought all of the suffering was just to get me to the point where I'd let you be Lord. Now I'll let you be Lord? I'm suffering? I mean, how does this work? You know, that's what goes on in people's minds. And why? A sad combination of bad teaching and naivete. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, if you have churches that emphasize prosperity and deliverance, then you're left with the assumption prosperity and deliverance is God's plan for people. Uh, uh, false promises. Be no suffering if you follow the Lord. At any rate, God says, listen, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you so something strange were happening to you. Uh, don't be surprised by it. Several reasons why we ought not to be surprised. Number one, though I've been redeemed, and I pray you have been, by turning in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Though I've been redeemed, I still live in a fallen world. 
Thankfully, that won't always be the case. But it's the case right now. A healed world awaits the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. For those that have been blinded by liberation theology and some sort of social transformative concept of what Christianity is all about, go for social justice, that's why Jesus came. Brothers and sisters, there's no social justice ultimately until the new heavens and the new earth. Sin has to be eradicated out of the picture. Uh, we live in a fallen world. It's not healed. That's why Jesus, we, we, at the end of the service day, we're, Lord willing, if I remember and leave us enough time, we're, we're going we're to sing that chorus out of, uh, out of John 16, 33. These things I've said to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Uh, God says, hey, we still, live in a, we still live in a place that's not so great. It hasn't been great since Eden. And it still reflects in many ways the, the hand of God, the creator, and things that we can praise him about. But it's a marred image. As Romans puts it, it's groaning, waiting for release. It makes sense I'm going to struggle and have some suffering if I'm still living in a place that's groaning. How could I not have groaning at times if I'm living in the context of a groaning world? It just doesn't make any sense. So that's one of the reasons. Secondly, I've been redeemed. I'm a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, as wonderful as that is, uh, a discovery comes upon all of us, a discovery like Romans 7 relates to us as Paul examines his life under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, in my innermost being now, I love the Lord, I want to follow his law. Uh, but I discovered there's another law at work in the members of my body. And that law in the members of my body waging war against the new man that I am. I'm not only in a fallen world, I'm still fighting the flesh, the programming that's there that doesn't cooperate always with who I've become in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you add a fallen world and still fallen bodies, though redeemed souls, hey, it's not always going to be good times. Right? going to be some suffering. That's the picture. If that wasn't bad enough, the truth of the matter is, the scripture is pretty plain, uh, I'm in a fallen world, struggling yet redeemed, but with a fallen body, eventually to be replaced, thank the Lord, <laughs> with a body in which is no longer troubled by sin. But I'm also left in a battlefield. Scripture's plain, isn't it? I mean, Ephesians 6, the spiritual warfare. First Peter, and we get into the fifth chapter, says, Hey, our enemy, the devil, stalks about like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. I've been left in a fallen world with contesting a fallen body and I'm in the middle of a battlefield. And God means it. It'd be like in our image being dropped on the border between Gaza and Israel. And if you find yourself at that border, you can't come to God and say, well, I know because I'm following you, uh, it's going to be comfortable. We're in a battlefield we're in a battlefield. And therefore, doesn't it make sense that like life is likely to have a certain amount of 
suffering, tension, grief. A fallen world, fallen bodies, battlefield with the enemy. Hey, we will face suffering in this world. Don't be surprised at it. It's like something strange is happening. Uh, in fact, he says at times the suffering we're going to encounter, it, 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 in the ESV it says there will be fiery trial. Fiery trial. Literally, a, it describes the idea of a burning in a refining sense. You know, you ever been around the molting of, of metal in order to refine it? Uh, I had friends that worked in the steel mills in, uh, uh, in Pittsburgh back when they had more of them. And uh, pretty pretty impressive place to see things burning off. Uh, and he says, that's kind of what it's like. Uh, and back in the first chapter, he said that. Hey, listen, though, for a little while, verses 6 and 7, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire. You know, he's already used this image in First Peter. Now he's coming back to it. God can let some pretty hard sufferings in our life, you know. God uses it to purify us, to help us grow, to open doors for the ministry. Now, we should actually, as a result of that, be surprised by the lack of suffering. Not by the presence of it. If we've gone for any period of time without encountering it, then at least we ought to say, am I not encountering it because I'm choosing to live such a life that the enemy doesn't see any problem with me? Or I've avoided being on some sort of battle front here? So, I mean, why would I not be encountering fiery trials? That would be the foreign, alien thing. So, that's verse 13. Verse 12, verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God says, listen, this is, the fiery trials are going to be there. This is the way it is. And I want you to rejoice when that's going on. Hey, brothers and sisters, there wouldn't be any time to rejoice in a fallen world if we didn't do it while it was going on. Because it's always going on to some degree. We don't carve out the rejoice times when everything's going seemingly smoothly. Not many times like that. We rejoice in our tears. We rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in our conflict. We come before the Lord and rejoice in Him. And He says, listen, I want you to rejoice insofar as you're sharing in Christ's sufferings so that you can rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. These sufferings help us to feel a true sharing with Christ. By the way, this word share, translated in the ESV here, is the Greek word koinonia, a form of koinonia. Koinonia in the Greek means a joint participation in the necessity of life, in the facing of life. That's why, while it wasn't exclusively used this way, koinonia was used often as a description of marriage. 
Because two people combining together in commitment to one another to jointly face what life brings. Two becoming one. We also use it as a descriptive term. It's translated partnership, fellowship in the New Testament, different places, forms of that word. He's using it here. He says, you want some koinonia with Christ? I'll send it to you. It's going to happen in the midst of tough times. I don't know if I want koinonia that bad. <laughs> God says, well, whether you do or not, uh, it's, that's what's going to happen. Kingdom suffering, in a way, I guess, helps us to feel koinonia with Christ. Like we're joint participants in life. We're actually facing life together. In fact, I think it's legit for somebody to say, you know, it's during the suffering times that I, I've encountered an intimacy with Christ that never is approached in the non-suffering times. Because I sense what it means to be united with him. <laughs> when I'm not suffering, I, I, I kind of almost am oblivious to, does that mean Jesus is in our life, not in our life? No, no, no. But my awareness of it, you follow? My awareness is tied to it. And, and I come into the suffering thing and I say, oh, it was good that I was afflicted, Lord. <laughs> I went through this tragedy in my life and I sensed you working within my heart. I sensed a closeness to you that, that intimacy. And while that struggle was hard, that was beautiful, Lord. You were there. You showed you never leave me nor forsake me. You show you stand by me. I see it more clearly when I'm hurting, Lord. Had that experience? That's what this passage is saying. Now, by the way, let me quickly say, because every so often I see something I need to say because false teaching comes out of passages of Scripture too. And lots of crazy things have been said about this. Let me quickly say to you, to share in Christ's suffering does not mean in some way we're helping to atone for sin in this world. I've encountered people who said things like that. People who were respected. And I'm saying, uh, no, 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 that, that, you know, whatever you may be suffering, it didn't help pay for sin anywhere. You know, uh, the suffering at the cross of that word made flesh and dwelt among us, that's what paid for sin. Nothing you suffer would have paid for it. That, that's not what it's about. It's not about atonement. That's already been done. Our suffering didn't add to the cross. And then secondly, closely related to that, I've heard people say, well, in a way, going through that suffering sort of does a little personal atonement, you know, for not being who God called me to be. Well, nobody was who God called them to be. I mean, what's this about? Either his death on the cross was sufficient or it wasn't. It wasn't like God says, well, it'll help. But I want you to suffer a little bit too. No, no, come on, let's get, let's get biblical in our understanding of these things. No, 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 this has nothing to do with personal atonement or atonement for sin. So if it doesn't, what does it mean to share? It means I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ insofar as it relates to my ambassador role, not my atonement role. My atonement role is zero. My ambassador role is major. Because I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ as a redeemed child of God in this world. 
And God uses suffering in my life as part of the tool for opening opportunities to be an ambassador, to share in the midst of a fallen world. Somehow, in some way that I can't completely understand, but someday I believe the Lord will make plain to me, whatever I've gone through and whatever yet I will go through in terms of suffering and trial is somehow linked to witness and evangelism in penetrating the lost, helping to create opportunity to share. I can't pretend to make sense of it in my life. I'll never make sense of it in yours. But that doesn't mean it's not going on. Listen to these verses. In Philippians chapter 1, a classic passage, in verses 12 to 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, Paul's, remember writing Philippians, chained between the praetorian guard. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that now it's become known through the whole imperial guard, the praetorian guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment's for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, much more bold to speak the word without fear. What? Yeah. What's happened to me is actually served to advance the gospel. And he wasn't talking about the fact that he gave $10 and now has 20000 That's not what he means by what happened to me. What happened to me is I'm chained between the Praetorian Guard. I don't have any freedom. I can't even preach on the street corners or on Mars Hill in Athens anymore. But it's served the gospel. It's, it's expanded it. Later on in the same chapter, in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be such worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This will be a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To be therefore engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now here that I still have. Sharing in the sufferings is linked to our ambassador opportunities. It's linked in some way to what God is doing. Certainly not linked to atonement. John 15 picks up on a similar theme. It says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Which, by the way, is good advice to any church that thinks we can somehow frame ourselves in such a way that the community around us loves us. Hey, it doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. And if it seems to, then whatever you've become isn't worth going to. He says, remember the word I said to you, servants not greater than his master? If they persecuted me... They'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'd keep yours. But in all these things, they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. All right. Tied to outreach and evangelism. But let's end on a high note here. (laughs) He reminds us that we're not only having koinonia in suffering, but koinonia in victory. 
Rejoice insofar as you have koinonia with Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, because you have koinonia with that too, is the structure in the Greek here. You have koinonia in both cases. Joint participation in both cases. Suffering for the kingdom is just one side of the equation. The Lord Jesus is upfront and personal with me in suffering. Intimate with me. We have koinonia. I'm going to be upfront and personal and in koinonia with him in the victory time, too. Just as real. Just as intimate. Just as deep. I won't just be some spectator way off removed. It'll be just as intimate, I believe, more so. I'll be close. I'll be part of that. Just as intimate. To be intimate in the suffering, I will be intimate in the victories. And especially at the time when he returns. So he says, don't permit that suffering to rob you of your happiness Suffering and happiness, not mutually contradictory things here. Mutually exclusive ideas. Thinking how Paul put it under direction of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory which is to be revealed to us. You know, like read through what he lists in 2 Corinthians of the sufferings he went through. And after you have that note of realism, then read Romans 8 again. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to what I have in him and what I will have in him. We can rejoice today, and we can be overjoyed with rejoicing then. It's all part of the continuum of what God is working out in the life of redeemed children Bottom line, my happiness in the Lord is not supposed to be dependent on circumstances, and especially the belief that somehow God's going to work a hedge around me so I don't have any bad circumstances. In a fallen world, in a fallen body, with an active enemy, I'm not going to have hard times? What's that about? You know, that's not going to happen. But God says, listen, your happiness doesn't have to be dependent on that. Every time I think about those concepts, I think about Howie Hendricks and the prof and his response, people saying to him, uh, I'm doing all right under the circumstances, and Howie's classic response, what are you doing under there? You know, it's like (laughs) uh, certain things you hear younger in your life, uh, never kind of, especially when you hear it directly, it always comes up in my ear, I can hear his tone of voice and saying it and everything, and I'm thinking, that's the right way to say it, Howie. Uh, what in the world am I doing under there? Not, why am I suffering? There's obvious reasons. Why am I not able to rejoice in it? Not be immune to it. Tears where tears are due. But, this isn't about psychosis. Uh, but, in the face of it, rejoice. Rejoice. Discover the intimacy and hold it in the inescapable sufferings. Well, a lot more to say. That's all we're getting to today. And uh, Lord willing, we'll continue to move on. I could have a show of hands for how many encountered tribulation this week, but what's the point? All the hands go up. So uh, the bigger issue 
Did you encounter peace and intimacy in the midst of it? God says you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time together in this day. Chance to share and song and prayer. Time to be in your word. Through the working of your spirit planted within us. Be with us in this day, in this week, in all that unfolds within it. Help us to rest in the promises you make, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.